Titus 3, we are reading verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would teach us to do your will, that your good spirit would lead us on level ground and direct us into all truth. And so we ask you to speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. In 2002, the Xerox Corporation lost over $300 million. The industry giant was dying. However, new leadership was installed, and in the course of four years, the company turned around, and in 2006, they netted over $1 billion. It was one of the remarkable turnarounds before the crash of 2008. The chief executive, a woman named Ann Mulkey, she was interviewed several years ago by Forbes magazine, and she was asked a series of questions about What was the key? What was the secret sauce was the language that was used behind the turnaround at Xerox? Listen to her answer. We learned a lot about identifying failure quickly. And as much as it's sometimes hard to make choices about where you invest, it's equally hard to make choices about where you don't invest and what you eliminate. And Mulcahy identified it. She identified perhaps the most difficult thing in any corporation, in any organization of people, and that is identifying what you're not going to do, and then it is in identifying what you are going to stop doing, the amount of discipline that it takes not to do certain things and to stop doing certain things that are unproductive. It's a matter of strategic prioritization, keeping first things first and not confusing the things of first importance with lesser things. And it's no different in the church than it is in the corporate world. The challenge of keeping first things first. In the first century, it was already a difficulty as various parties around the church vied for attention with their particular issues and their particular theological slants and what they wanted to enforce in the community. And in this very short epistle from the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Titus, Paul speaks to Titus about what is important, about the first things. 
And you find this in the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus, where you find little condensed sayings like verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. These trustworthy statements that were to be insisted on are the things of first importance in the church. For the Apostle Paul, it's where the church's vitality and health rose and fell. If the first things were lost, if they were compromised, if they somehow became secondary, then the church would begin to crumble and it would fall apart. And so Titus was to insist on certain things. And what's crucial for us is to understand very precisely what are these things? What are these things that we are to insist on? And there's two things that we find in these verses across verses 1 through 8. First, we must insist that our good works do not obligate God. Verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. This is a very clear and plain explanation of how salvation, according to the Christian gospel, happens. That it's not according to our efforts and our works. Paul explicitly says it's not by works done in righteousness. And what that means are works that are completed with an aim towards gaining something from God. Works done in order to procure something. That we can somehow bring God into our debt. That if we do something, God then owes us something. We can put a claim on God. And Paul is announcing very clearly that this is contrary to the grace of God and how salvation unfolds according to Jesus. That salvation is purely gratuitous. That it's God's gift that is handed to us. It's by the mercy of God. And our efforts and our involvement have nothing to do with gaining that. That it simply comes to us as a gift. It's not a wage we deserve. It's not something that God owes us. In any effort inside of the church to say that the grace of God is not free, that we can place obligation on God, Paul says it doesn't comport with grace. It doesn't fit and actually compromises it. And we can find this error, though, in the church, and you can find it in two ways. Sometimes you will find it in very explicit ways. That is where there is formal teaching, where someone will stand up and teach and say, yes, well, there is a compromise between grace and works, and that the way that you gain God's favor is you ask him for forgiveness, and then you fill that in with your part of obedience. And that you bring these two together and God will be gracious to you on the last day. There are some who teach doctrine like that, despite the clarity of what the scripture says, that we are not saved by works done in righteousness. But I'd say the more prevalent error, the one that perhaps plagues us, it's more subtle and that's what makes it more dangerous, is the implicit error. The mistakes that is made surrounding works where we begin to trust in ourselves. That is, we find our confidence in what we do. And so functionally, our relationship with God is rooted in works, even though we don't even uh, explicitly recognize it. 
You can think of Luke 18, where Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Luke tells us that Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees because they trusted in themselves. They found their confidence in their own righteousness. And this is frequently what happens in the church, in our behaviors, in our attitudes. It's not in any formal doctrinal statement. We know that we're saved by the grace of God. But yet implicitly and very quietly, we begin to find a confidence in our own goodness. And we begin to look down at others and judge them. Several years ago, I was sharing lunch with an old college friend and his wife is at our denomination's general assembly. And my friend had just taken a new call in which he had bounced around in various ministries and then landed in a very good work in which he was serving the urban poor in a neighborhood. It's a wonderful initiative. And during the course of the lunch, though, I noted several dismissive comments about churches in the suburbs. You couldn't say it with a more derogatory tone. And churches uh, that were in the South as well. And how these were just places they, glad, they, they were glad they had avoided. And they were so happy where God had taken them because those churches didn't get it. They could tell that I was growing profoundly uncomfortable. Despite all of our years of friendship, it seemed so glaringly obvious what was happening. And friends, this is the challenge. That no matter how well rehearsed we are in the gospel, that we are so prone to taking good things and growing proud in them and then looking in contempt on others and not realizing that we are constructing and building an edifice of our own righteousness in which we're then sitting in judgment on other people and we're somehow thinking we're superior and we don't see that that type of pride is self-righteousness and it strikes at the very vitals of what the gospel says that God saved us by his mercy. And do you know the people who are most susceptible? The people most susceptible to that kind of righteousness are the ones who are deeply committed to the gospel. You see, my friends had paid a price. They had made sacrifices. And in those sacrifices, they began to radicalize. And so they then began to sit in judgment on other people and find some pride in what they had done. God had certainly called them there. And I'm glad for their service. But that calling is no justification for setting up your own list of works that somehow then make you approvable and acceptable. That's what's unacceptable inside the church. And so we must be very careful about our good causes. We are to adopt them. We are to participate in them. We are to engage them. But we must always know that our good causes do not save us. What we give ourselves to cannot put God in our debt. And it can't become a source of confidence and arrogance in which we look down on others because we find ourselves superior. Don't find your confidence there. Second thing that Paul is going to say that we must insist on is that God's mercy has the first and the last word in salvation. Here again what he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness 
of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's a magnificent, short, condensed statement of the gospel in which Paul rehearses all that has taken place in Jesus Christ, that God has come and initiated with us. When he says the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appear, there are two paths that you can take. Some people take it to be a reference to the incarnation of God when he comes in the flesh as Jesus Christ, and some take it to be, no, this is talking about when the loving kindness of God enters into our life, when we hear the preaching of the gospel and it appears to us and we're converted and we come under the spell of God's grace. This is my own opinion about the passage that this is what it means, that he's talking about the grace of God appearing to us in an existential fashion by the enlightening and illuminating work of the Spirit of God. And then he moves on to speak of the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is a reference to baptism in which we are washed and we receive the exhibition of all that God promises to do for us and that the Spirit then makes effective and applies in our lives in his own timing. And then he moves on to speak of justification and the grace of God that we've received and being put in a right relationship with God. And you notice that you're put in a right relationship with God. And he says it's by grace that it's freely done by God. And finally, he moves to this last piece where we are made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is the life of the world to come when God will return and correct all the wrong. And he will remove it. And he will make his world right and clean. Always what it was intended to be. And sin and its pollution will be no more. That's the scope that Paul rehearses here. From first to last, the grace of God reigns supreme. That it's not to be compromised. It's not to be diluted. It's not to be cut short. That everything we have is of grace. And this is what the church is to insist on. It's a thing of first importance. And that the church must be disciplined. That we don't allow other things to creep in. We don't allow secondary things to somehow become of first importance. That our chief proclamation, the message on which we live and die on, is that salvation is not of us. That salvation is God for us in Jesus Christ. This is what we insist on. Anything that rivals this, whether it's intentional or not, challenges the very priority that we're to place on the grace of God. But this begs a question. Why are we to insist on these things? What does Paul say? And I want you to finish the second half of verse 8. This is where we find the answer. The saying is trustworthy, And I want you to insist on these things, referring to the grace of God, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
And this is where it's so important for us to get the formula and the equation right. That we're not saved by our good works, but because we've been saved by the grace and mercy of God, then we are to do something, to devote ourselves to good works. The so that there is vitally important. We have believed in God, and now so that we can then be devoted to good works. And what's critical for us to get is that we insist on the freedom of God's grace so that we can devote ourselves to good works. You see, the freedom of grace doesn't somehow free us from effort. It frees us from meritorious effort in which we try to earn and gain something from God. Rather, we sit in the position of those who are heirs who have been granted everything in Jesus. There's nothing lacking in our salvation. It's all come to us gratuitously. We can't pay for it. We can't put a claim on God. We can't put God in our debt somehow. And because of that, we are then liberated into his service to give ourselves freely to him. That is what grace has done. See, the alternate path is that we become anxiously driven, that we're full of anxiety, that when our relationship with God is based on our performance before God, we play the simple game of he loves me, he loves me not. It's incredibly unstable and insecure, and we're always guessing, and it vacillates day to day and hour to hour and week to week and month to month and year to year. And we can drive ourselves literally crazy under that pressure. But God has removed all that. It's not there. That's not what good works are about. Good works are the response of gratitude, of the one who has been redeemed, of the one who is now being purified in this washing of regeneration. That God's work is a transaction that is accomplished in Jesus, is something that a judgment has been made about us because of Jesus' death, that we've been set right with God. And then God's work is transformational. That is, he is now in us by the Holy Spirit, changing us, regenerating our character, making us new. And that because of that, we're liberated to serve, to give ourselves to him. But what exactly do these good works look like? This will be one of the subjects that we cover over the next weeks, is what are good works? What qualifies? And in various contexts, you'll find various different answers from the Apostle Paul. But here in the short epistle to Titus, we find an intense emphasis on good works because there were false teachers around. And he tells us in verse 16 of chapter 1 that their lives did not demonstrate the grace of God, that they were given to all kinds of other things. And so they had no works that were vindicating then their belief in our Lord Jesus. And so what we find though as we get further into the letter, specifically in chapter 3, look, follow with me in verses 1 and 2. This is the content of these good works. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's interesting because the apostles' focus here is on our external relationships with the world around us. 
That is, it's not focused on our relationships inside the church, but it's focused upon our activities with those who don't share faith in Christ with us and how we are to relate to them. You'll note that he goes all the way to the top of the totem pole, and he addresses our relationship to political authorities. And does he say that you are to watch Fox News for six hours and to become angry about the direction of the nation? Does he say that you're to watch CNN and to lament until the next four years when a president is elected that may be to your liking? No. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And no matter how bad you may think you have it, whatever side of the political spectrum that you're on, no matter how bad you think you have it, you don't have it like they had it. Rulers and authorities referred to the Roman Empire that didn't share faith in our Lord Jesus. In fact, they found it to be an intimidating little nasty belief coming out of Israel that this upstart who had been crucified by Rome claimed to be the Lord of the world. How dare he? And Paul calls them to be submissive, respectful. People often ask me why our church prays for Donald Trump. Same reason that we prayed for Barack Obama. Same reason we prayed for George Bush. Same reason that we pray for anyone who rules and is in authority. Because it's in obedience to scripture. That we pray for those whom God instructs us to pray for. And we seek to be submissive. And we don't seek to define ourselves in the church by our political commitments. It's fine to be engaged in the political world. It's fine to be active in that. Believe it's a good thing for Christians to do and to find a calling in that. But our political lives are not to trump the gospel. That is removing the first things of God's grace. And so part of our good works are being submissive to rulers and authorities, being obedient, ready for every good work, not speaking evil of anyone. Think about that. Not quarreling, being gentle and showing perfect courtesy. Thinking of your life as you are someone who is like a host and you're showing courtesy to the outsider. It's an external focus to these good works. But if you were to go up into chapter 2, you would see that Paul is also talking about good works. And in those good works, he is commending works that are done inside of the church. So not only is there an external focus about our reputation and our life with those who don't share faith with us, but also in our life together, that there are things we are to do. We are to be kind and gentle, compassionate and caring. He closes the letter like this in verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And so the grace of God invests us and engages us with life inside the congregation caring for one another, admonishing one another, instructing one another, building one another up, encouraging each other. This is what it looks like to be active and engaged in good works. And friends, the grace of God has freed us into that. So what does it take? This past week, I traveled to Arlington, Virginia. It was a, a return 
home for me in, in certain ways. And I presided over our friend and our brother's funeral there, Tom Damish. We had the graveside in Arlington Cemetery, and then we went to a small church where I formerly preached for six years, and we had the service. And as I met Tom's friends and family from around the country, it was interesting. They all looked at me and they said, you knew him. Because I had shared stories about how Tom served me and my family. And they went on to then share their own stories about how Tom came into their life at a particular time and how he served them. And friends, this is how the Christian life is lived. It's not very complicated, it's rather simple. You may remember the story of when I shared the news with my oldest son that Mr. Damish had passed away. We both began crying, and he said, I'm going to miss him. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, Dad, for the last year, every Sunday after the service, he's come up to me and asked me how I'm doing. What my son didn't know is that over a lunch with Tom, he'd asked how he could pray for my family. And I told him, I said, well, one of my sons is having a hard time in middle school, as everyone does. <laughs> but if you pray for him, it's a tough time in life. And so Tom then took it on himself to very intentionally ask. He would go out of his way, and he would engage with the teenager. He didn't say to himself, this teenager will never want to talk to me. This teenager is going to think I'm unimportant. He's going to think I'm weird. No, rather, he just extended a hand of compassion, took a very intentional step. And this is what it takes, guys. It's not complicated. It takes good theology, knowing that your works aren't going to procure something from God. It takes sacrifice, that is, going out of your way and thinking of someone ahead of yourself. And then it takes some intentionality, some forethought in life as to how to prioritize something above our own interests and needs and our own concerns. This is how we get into a life of good works that we are to be devoted to. We're actually told in chapter 2 and verse 14 that we are to be a people zealous for them. And you can be zealous because of the grace of God. Being zealous for good works will not make you self-righteous. Being zealous for good works because you've been bought and redeemed, that you've been justified, are being sanctified, that you will be glorified, that you're an heir of eternal life. When you have all of that in front of you, the last thing on your mind is that you're procuring and buying something from God with what you're doing. But rather, it's just a life yielded to God. You see, good works are dangerous. They're dangerous because they tempt us to find our confidence and our status in them. And good works are dangerous because while we can't obligate God with them, we are obligated to do them. We're to engage it zealously and so take up the joyful task. Listen to these words in chapter 2, verse 14. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
That's what he's doing in your life. That's his call and command. Find his grace and go out into it. Let's pray.